the NHS is far more than simply a healthcare system. It's one of the most important social institutions in the world. Its importance, if anything, is understated in Nigel Lawson's well-known aphorism that it's the closest the English people get to organised religion. <laughs> Certainly, like any religion, it has its belief systems, its tracts, its factions, its disputations, its faults, its disciples, its Samaritans, its Pharisees, and its enemies, both within and without. Yet no other institution so closely touches people's lives and supports them at their times of greatest vulnerability. No other institution offers care and treatment to all, free at the time and point of need and of greatest fear, irrespective of social standing or ability to pay. Every year in England, there are 340 GP consultations. That means that the NHS sees about a million patients a day in England. 438 million visits to community pharmacy, 24 million calls to urgent and emergency care phone lines, 7 million emergency ambulance journeys, 21.7 million attendances in A&E departments, and the list goes on. But it doesn't act in isolation. It's acting constantly in partnership with others, with the charitable sector, with local government, with, with the other partners across England. And this volume of activity is in turn reflected in the number of people who are engaged in the support of those who are ill in this country. We estimate that 1.3 million people are employed on the funds that we control uh, at NHS England alongside a further one and a half million people employed in adult social services. An estimated 17,000 organisations involved in providing or organising adult social care at 39,000 establishments. On top of this, 5.8 million people providing unpaid care to family and loved ones. Of these, 3.7 million we estimate are providing free care for between 1 and 19 hours a week and about one and a half million caring for more than 50 hours a week. That's the starting point. Put alongside that our further estimate, which is that for every hour of NHS contact, patients themselves engage in 5,000 hours of self-care. And that gives us pause for thought as we contemplate how healthcare may be transformed in the future and the capacity for transformation through technology. That's the national context. Let me just say a few words about the global context. Health systems across the world are in crisis. None in the developed world is currently sustainable into the future without fundamental transformational reform. The last month alone has seen significant health funding cuts in Australia and in France. Healthcare is still largely a cottage industry across the world. Poorly integrated and in many respects insufficiently focused on the needs and the desires of the patient at the heart of the system. It suffers from a fragmented supply chain, lacks coordination of processes and activities across prevention, diagnosis, treatment, aftercare, reablement, finance, and IT. Now, it's not universally so. There are many extraordinary pioneers of change. In this country, I have seen the growth of activity in the new clinical commissioning groups, which at their best are truly outstanding in, in reconfiguration, the provision of services around patients in their areas. And in the USA, there are, as it were, holistic systems like Kaiser Permanente in California and the <coughs> Veterans Administration, which was transformed by leadership from being a bankrupt organization uh, in the late 1990s into being now one of the finest healthcare systems in the world. But there are exceptions. Funding is running out for the continuation of the status quo. In this country, the 4 to 5% uplift in real funding annually that the NHS has enjoyed since 1948 has roughly reflected the growth in demand. I mean, these two are iterative, funding and demand. But we've seen a steady growth since 1948 in both demand and funding. But the funding growth expired in 2010 as a consequence of the global financial crisis. So we're now 
in our fourth year of the tightest squeeze the NHS has known in its history, with little prospect, I would say, of an early return uh, to those generous funding levels of earlier years. We have to think. The other part of context is the changing burden of disease. 15.4 million people in the UK now have more, one or more long-term conditions, more than one quarter of the population. We know that over the next uh, 20 years, the numbers of people over 65, um, well represented here tonight, will rise <laughs> from 10.5 million to 14.8 million. 800,000 people are now living with dementia. We guess that that's going to increase to um, over uh, a million uh, within the next few years. Within the next 30 years, we think it's going to double uh, and cost us something like 50 billion pounds a year to, uh, uh, to treat and to care for patients living with dementia. Highlighted in the Times today was the problem of obesity. According to a study just published in The Lancet, uh, conducted at Washington University, uh, some 2.1 British girls and 2 million boys are overweight or obese. Only Iceland and Malta have worse overall rates of obesity. That's not a problem so much for today as for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and 40 years' time. And of course it reflects also a growing trend in the adult population. So in place of early death, we have an aging population now living with chronic disease. A third of those with long-term conditions of physical disability also have long-term mental health conditions. One of the orphans of the NHS and long overdue for significant investment and, and development. So the cost of these conditions is a very significant component of the total NHS budget. Uh, with patients with chronic disease currently consume about 70% of our investment in healthcare, and we expect the numbers to rise from 1.9 million to 2.9 million by 2018. Uh, people aged over 65 consult GPs five times more frequently than the average population. They account for 62% of total bed days in hospital and 68% of emergency bed days. Those figures are not necessary. Much of that is avoidable. But the needs of patients have changed much faster than our healthcare system has been able to adapt. The gap between the two and our systemic dysfunctionality, as well as illustrated in this example from the recent report by Sir John Oldham, and I'll just give you a brief extract from it, he writes, Mrs. P is widowed and lives on her own a few miles away from her daughter. She's 85, has breathing problems, high blood pressure and diabetes. In a good month, without any emergency visits, she will see 10 different professionals from the health and social care world, each of whom has a specific task. Most of her days are spent waiting for someone to, carry out, to come and carry out some care. Last year, Mrs. P went to A&E five times, and on two occasions she had to be admitted to hospital for breathing trouble. Both her periods in hospital came about because the various elements of care did not help to identify early deterioration. In total, she spent 30 days in hospital in emergency beds. This is what happens to millions of people as a result of our fragmented system of care. It would be far better for Mrs. P if she saw fewer people who were better coordinated and better informed about her care and her health. A personal note. 42 years ago, I arranged to travel from New Zealand to London to take up a lecturing position in Southampton University. In the preceding five years, the travel choices had tipped in favour of flying rather than travelling by boat. It seemed to be faster, and it was getting cheaper. So um, my arrangements were made by a travel agent. They took a couple of weeks and several meetings. Um, we had several letters and telexes, uh, for those who remember that mode of communication. Uh, we poured over brochures. We dispatched bankers' drafts and travellers' checks. 
and in return I received a great wad of tickets uh, for, for, for travel. The journey itself involved eight flights. Uh, Auckland to Sydney, to Darwin, to Jakarta, to Hong Kong, to Calcutta, to Cairo, to Athens, and to London. Only one of those aircraft was ever full. The rest had about a 30% occupancy rate. And um, particularly with an airline called Pan Am, as I remember. So earlier this month, I returned to New Zealand for a week. I was my own travel agent. I did my research online, I booked the flights online, I paid online, I checked in online, and I downloaded my boarding pass to my mobile phone, and I traveled in full planes uh, with a single touchdown for refueling. So digitization has completely transformed the way that we travel, except for parts of British Rail's industry. <laughs> and it's similarly transformed our relationship with banks and with retailers. Loyalty cards inform both parties. Uh, as to uh, the best value uh, for their businesses and for their operations. And it brings a transparency which sharpens competition and enhances choice, reduces dependency on agents and advisors. It's both a transformation and a democratization of process. So what about health? Well, in 2002, there was a seminal report by Derek Wanless, uh, I have to say it makes quite depressing reading in 2014. He noted the NHS information strategy in England of just the previous year, 2001. And it had set out the intention that by the end of 2002, hospitals and GPs would be routinely exchanging electronic requests for referrals, discharge summaries, laboratory and radiology requests and results, by 2005, it was planned that there would be an electronic patient record system for all acute hospitals, integrated primary and community records, and 24-hour emergency care access to all patient records. He commented that the current rate of implementation of ICT in the NHS was extremely poor, and that the annual ICT spend per employee was lower than in any other sector of the economy. And nonetheless, innovation was occurring, but typically in a piecemeal fashion. He had a brilliant vision for the use of IT, not only for 2002, for 2005, but for 2022. Now, Wanless was a technology optimist, and so am I. But we haven't yet met the 2002 and 2005 promises. What chance have we of getting there by 2022, and what are the blockages, and what are the hopes? I just want to spend a few moments on the importance of pessimism. <laughs> it's terribly easy to be swept away by technological advance. The hype always plays a major part. So let me just set for you the context of the Times. You can see I had nothing to do all day but read the newspapers. The Times this morning has got two fabulous uh, technology stories. Uh, the first was the Google car. Uh, it has no steering wheel or brakes, and there's a very unkind cartoon uh, linking it to the Liberal Democrat uh, <laughs> party. Uh, uh, and, um, but, the, but the car is totally uh, controlled by outside forces. I shouldn't. Uh, I must dismiss that linkage. Uh, dismiss that linkage from my mind. But um, uh, and, and, and totally controlled by technology, and you don't buy it. You'll rent it by the minute. Uh, and, the, and the vision uh, of Google is that this will transform cities. Why, why, why would you want to live in the middle of a city when you can just, uh, on your mobile phone, summons a car, get in it, and somebody drives you in, and you can work uh, all during the journey. There won't be any traffic jams because the whole thing's regulated um, by Dr. Google in the sky. Uh, and then the second one is the, the, the Skype language translator. So it will be possible for us, those of us who are monoglots, which excludes Sir Stephen, but... Uh, to uh, make a phone call anywhere in the world and have it automatically translated on both sides so that we uh, can misunderstand each other in our own languages. So uh, the, the hype is wonderful and it's great fodder uh, for the newspapers. But the major inhibitor of adoption of technology within the NHS and more generally in government isn't the technology, it's culture. Uh, it's an ability to... Uh, fashion 
our approaches and our institutional models to the demands and the expectations of the technology. So the Wanless vision uh, was developed within the context of an initiative led by the Prime Minister, uh, by Tony Blair, personally, in his study in Downing Street. Uh, it was to be a national NHS national programme for IT, and it was to be delivered by an organisation called Connecting for Health. I don't want to rehearse this evening the gloomy story of that initiative. Those who are interested can buy the book uh, or download the book uh, by Anthony King and Ivor Crew called The Blunders of Our Governments, which makes the most sober reading of all. I think I get two messages from it. One is the more politically led uh, a, a, a development, the less chances has of success. And the greater the amount of political consensus across all parties, the greater the chance of complete disaster. <laughs> Uh, they, they give the child support agency as the exemplar uh, of that. Uh, but the story, as summarized by King and by Crewe, uh, is that some 20 billion had been consumed in the project by the time it was abandoned by the incoming coalition government in 2010 in favor of encouraging local NHS bodies to make their own arrangements. Some good did come of it. Uh, there have been some benefits from that program, but that vision of 2002 remains unfulfilled. And yet, it's starting to work. That notion of developing primary care systems and secondary systems locally is starting to gain traction. In fact, in England, our primary care electronic systems are really quite mature. Early investment by GPs with government support and with the investment by the industry has meant uh, that we have good quality digital records held uh, in primary care. Uh, we've allocated, this is NHS England, 260 million last year and another follow-up in this coming year to try to bring the digital records in NHS trusts up to a similar level of performance. But that will require much more investment and much more time. Indeed, one of the conclusions of King and Crew was that those hospitals who failed to implement the old Connecting for Health model were immensely fortunate. Uh, those that did implement it uh, suffered terribly in damage uh, to medical records, research records, funding, uh, etc. So we've also, in the latest negotiation of the GP contract, introduced a new requirement for GP practices to upload information about medicines, allergies and adverse reactions onto patients' summary care records. So that part of Wanderers starts to become realizable. Those are available for access by out-of-hours services, ANS 111 and A&E providers, of course, always with the consent of the patient. Uh, we've also introduced something for which I think uh, common sense has been dictating should have been introduced at the very outset of the development of IT, which is that everybody in the NHS uses the same way of identifying the patient, uh, which is their NHS number. Uh, at the moment, the greatest risk to patients is the handover point. And if uh, material is handed over uh, and the primary care practitioner and the secondary care practitioner are using different patient identifiers, uh, the opportunity for error and for danger uh, to patients is magnified. So we are going to require that to occur in all clinical correspondence uh, from immediate effect, uh, in fact, from last month. But in the, in the absence of a national framework, all of this remains fragmented until we've ensured interoperability. So we can make universal use of the NHS number as the first step, uh, but we need then to be underpinning it with proper IT systems which aren't major mainframe systems, but are midware which can read and reconcile uh, records drawn from different uh, providers. So it's essential to do that and also to allow to be built on that a number of new health apps uh, which are starting to multiply, and I'll come back to some of those in the area of mobile health uh, subsequently. So um, it's quite important to sort out the IT models, not only to make the NHS work more efficiently and to make it more safe for patients, but also to start bringing about some of that democratization, that access to information, that ability for patients to take greater command 
uh, of their own health status and control of their whole, whole health condition. I venture that proposition tempered by appropriate pessimism, which is in the following words that um, realizing that technology itself is never going to supplant the core values of care and compassion, that sense of reassurance, that, that sense that somebody actually cares and, and, and wishes to assist a patient, all of which lies at the heart of proper care in which we have been striving to reintroduce and drive through the nursing profession in light of those scandalous affairs at Edmund Staffordshire Hospital. But technology can't replace that, but it can supplement it and support it. And there is another ground for pessimism as well, which I need to express now, which is the, the risk that technology widens the inequalities in access to health and to health care in a country which is already riven uh, with inequality. One of my colleagues on the board of NHS England, Lord Victor Adabawali, keeps talking to me about the inverse care law, uh, which is that um, uh, the poorest care is given to those who are most in need of the best care. Uh, it was something that Bevan set out in 1948 to correct by introducing a national health service. And yet all the indicators, the work, that's, fabulous work that's done by Michael Marmot at UCL around the social determinants of health indicate how strong uh, the forces against providing a truly national and fair and equitable service across the country that assures an equality of opportunity for people no matter where they're born. So while I'm on the pessimistic kick, uh, let me turn to the question of cost. The assumption often is that technology somehow has a universal gloop uh, will bring down the cost of providing health care. Uh, of course, in many instances, technology has rapidly driven up cost of providing good health care. Successive waves of technology have um, increased uh, the way in which patients can be, improved the way in which patients can be treated. And much of this discovery, by the way, has occurred in this country. The discovery and sometimes the development of stuff such as anti uh, anti monoclonal antibodies, the invention of magnetic resonance imaging, uh, the development of other major non-invasive imaging technologies of DNA fingerprinting, orthopedic implants, the Human Genome Project, to which I will return, and of course drug discovery. So these have all played a major part in promoting longevity, uh, which has been constantly rising uh, in England over the past three decades, but also in promoting a significant enhancement in the quality of life uh, of the people. Because if you can have an early intervention using a new technology, uh, which decreases the prospect of people living with seriously debilitating uh, disabilities uh, for some time, then it's all good. And that's, that's a valuable investment. The use of technology to enhance what the NHS can do. If we didn't want to improve quality of care, and if we wanted to reduce the cost of the NHS, we would encourage the nation to take up smoking again. So we have to drive high quality health care and be willing to pay the price. But let me then turn to the concept of technology as a game changer. Because underneath all of those cautionary words, which I felt obliged to spell out, in case I'm accused of a feckless, Pollyannaish approach to medical healthcare technology, there lies a deeper probability. And it is that technology will transform healthcare for some, if not all, populations, no matter what the NHS may do to promote or adopt it. It's a global phenomenon. It's already a major focus of activity in Silicon Valley. Uh, the Medical health technologies figure high in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's annual review of new breakthrough transformative technologies. Indeed, a Times report, sorry, a Times report again on the 19th of May this year was headed, Modernize or Vanish, Google Warns the NHS, reporting that if the NHS doesn't embrace data, there won't be an NHS within 10 to 15 years. Earlier this week, the 
remarkable US Indian entrepreneur Vinod uh, Koshla addressed a seminar at Stanford University and told them that the days of doctors were numbered. Machines armed with data would make most of the clinical decisions in the future. Indeed, he went on, biological science will be important, but it actually feels like data science will do more for medicine than all the biological sciences combined. So I want to spend a little bit of time tonight thinking about those propositions. And I think that central in our thoughts needs to be the proposition that there is a game-changing capacity of data technologies. And there's an opportunity for the NHS to become a global leader in this field. Let me just list the exceptional advantages that we have in England. Apologies, by the way, for always speaking about England, but my remit only extends to England and not the Scottish uh, or Welsh or, or Northern Ireland health systems. So in England, we enjoy this remarkable combination, a national health service with universal coverage, an exceptional array of medical data, outstanding universities, uh, some of them in the top four in the world. Um, uh, you mentioned one. I don't recall what the others are, but there's um, uh, a highly innovative industrial base. And this, this isn't, by the way, just the life sciences industries. It's not just the pharmaceutical industries. Uh, but it includes engineering, manufacturing, and IT, the interactive clusters of firms that we have now got around Cambridge and in London and developing around university and hospital campuses elsewhere in the country. It's a really powerful ecosystem with the NHS at its heart. And the NHS, I would suggest, not occupying an inward-looking enclave, but centrally promoting innovation and growth in the nation's economy. So it's a complex field, and all that I can offer tonight is something of a helicopter view. But let me identify five key areas of technological revolution that are likely to be transformational, whether we promote them or not. And the question is, are we on this unruly horse, or are we standing idly to one side? These are big data, stratified medicine, genomics, mobile health, and nanotechnology. Uh, it's their combined use. The combined use, not each in a vacuum, the combined use. This is the key building block to release the potential. So big data. Big data is different from little data. That, I think, is evident from the name. Uh, we have databases which are quite big uh, and which are capable of being read and which allow us to understand trends. But the development of new analytical tools has opened a whole new era in computation across biological and other sciences. And I think, by the way, biology will be a data science uh, dominated by data. Already, computation plays a major part in understanding uh, human biology. So it's going to be possible, and already is occurring, to assemble huge databases, including both structured and unstructured data, and to analyze them using tools that can process natural language. But tools that don't just process and list and draw out trends, but tools that involve computers learning, learning from an iterative process of relation to the data of how to detect far deeper trends. So two principal tools. One is just data mining, which involves the discovery of previously undiscovered qualities in the data. And then machine learning, which develops programming systems to automatically learn and to improve with experience, such as learning to predict which medical patients will respond to which treatments by analyzing the experience captured in databases of online medical records. So this cognitive computing is potentially truly disruptive. It's an area where English universities, by the way, are already major players in developing software along these lines. Imagine a database that contains every medical textbook, every medical paper, historical clinical information regarding a huge cohort of patients. This could and is being used in decision support for clinicians in real time and to empower research. I'll just give you one example. IBM uh, developed a computer program called Dr. Watson. Uh, it's now being employed uh, commercially. 
Uh, it's using 18,000 only uh, historical patient records. But it enables clinicians to provide hypothesis generation, evidence-based learning, generating confidence-scored recommendations to help clinicians take the right decisions, and it learns on the job. So the top cancer hospital in the world, or one of the two top cancer hospitals in the world, which is MD Anderson in Texas, is now using this operationally to uncover actionable insights from its wealth of data. So MD Anderson sees about 100,000 patients a year. Using those data, analyzing them, and then applying it to individual cases and providing clinicians with appropriate individual care plan options for patients. So there's a patient-specific application. What we need to understand is what does a population application start to look like? So already... This technology is a huge multi-billion dollar worldwide opportunity. It's expanding rapidly. Uh, a recent forecast shows that big data technology and services markets growing at about 25% compound annual growth. Uh, it'll be $32 billion by 2017. And it's growing at about six times the growth rate of overall IT market. So Google are in on the act. Uh, and are already developing big data technologies using their extraordinary computing capacity and the cloud data uh, that they hold. So it's got obvious consequences for historic models of drug discovery and development, which frankly are broken, because the huge upfront costs and development times of drug uh, development, which by the way are passed on to the NHS. Our drugs budget is now 10% of our spend annually, uh, and 50% of that is around specialised commissioning, uh, and particularly drugs used in some of the major uh, killer diseases. So, what can it do for NHS patients? Let me start by saying that we've actually got some of the best data in the world. The data that is held by GPs, very fine, well done, rigorously coded the data that's held by hospitals through our hospital episode statistics, which is a national database we've been running for, I think, about 15 years, again, has excellent data. But they don't speak to each other. It's utterly fragmented. The, two, the data aren't combined. So we can know what happens within a hospital to a patient who's been treated in a hospital. What we don't know is what happened to them beforehand and what happened to them afterwards. The GP will know that, but may not necessarily know what happened to them in the hospital. Uh, it's an extraordinary vacuum uh, in the data that we have and our ability to use it intelligently. Hence our program of care.data, which has attracted a significant amount of publicity uh, in the media. Let me just emphasize that this will, for the first time, combine these two data sets. We're rich in data, but we're just failing to use it I think failing to use it seriously and responsibly for the benefit of patients. Let me just give two examples of what we believe that care.data may enable us to do. Let me just take asthma. 5.4 million people in the UK suffer from asthma. It costs us in England one billion pounds a year, and three people die every day from asthma. But three quarters of hospital admissions from asthma are avoidable. In order to improve the quality and efficiency of asthma care, we have to understand how all parts of the NHS are working together for patients, including GP practices, outpatient clinics, A&E departments, hospital wards, and intensive care units. At the moment, we haven't got the data that allows us to undertake that simple assessment of how data is treated across the NHS. Secondly, diabetes. We spend one and a half million pounds on diabetes care every hour. It is a major epidemic. We estimate that 80% of that is on treating avoidable complications, such as diabetic eye disease and kidney disease. Together, those complications account for 24,000 deaths every year. Many of those deaths are avoidable. By studying the combined data, we know it will be possible to track areas with unusually high rates of diabetic complications, the nature and quality of care provided in the community prior to the complication, and to allow commissioners to improve or redesign diabetes services. I've just given two examples. I could add 
heart disease, side effects of oral contraceptives, stroke, multiple sclerosis, and the impact of use of aspirin and, and beta blockers. We know what they do to individual patients, but we don't know what they do across larger populations. We have got the data, and we're failing irresponsibly to deploy it to the benefit of patients. So, without this joined-up information, the NHS continues to fly blind. We've listened to concerns about data protection, which have dominated the media discussion of this programme, and we've made some key changes uh, to the programme. Uh, we will start to roll it out uh, from autumn this year, and Parliament has just enacted a special provision regarding uh, secure holding of patient data uh, nationally in the new uh, Social Care Act, which went through uh, just last week. So that data, much of it can be used with conventional models of data analysis. How can we take that further? The starting point, I think, is in stratified medicine, which is one subset of this activity. And this, this allows, us, or allows us to divide the population into groups of people with particular conditions. And we need to understand why this particular cohort, shall we say, with diabetes or with heart disease, uh, is subject to what risks and what treatments actually work. So this becomes then an application of, of, of big data to understand what markers to look out for and reliably predict disease and select the best care plan and improve patient outcomes. So it starts with research, and uh, we then are able to compare the markers and the indicators and the variables about this group of population with the rest of the population and understand how... Uh, the, the, what are the risk factors and what is the best course of action with iteration after iteration after iteration as the intelligence becomes more sophisticated and more precise. So it's at an early stage of development but there's a lot of activity underway. Cancer Research UK uh, leading a program on stratified medicine as to the effectiveness of future cancer treatments and uh, there's some very interesting work being done by Macmillan Cancer Support who say, using anonymized data, they can start to understand over the past 12 years the impact of cancer uh, treatment and support. But using data that the NHS doesn't treat as raw material, but treats as waste in the system. We have to reverse that. And we have very strong support from Macmillan and from the other uh, voluntary organizations concerned with healthcare. Let me move to the next layer, which is genomics. So this is the next step on, if you like, from, uh, from genetics. Um, it's the operation of not just one gene, but of genes working uh, together, and how their effect on the human condition is influenced by a huge variety of environmental and other factors. So the genome simply means all your genes, and um, you may remember the huge effort that went into the sequencing of the first human genome. It took 13 years, it consumed two billion pounds, and it was a transatlantic partnership. Largely, I would say, a transatlantic partnership because of the extraordinary wisdom of the Wellcome Trust in investing in it to ensure that the outcome of that sequencing was publicly available and was not subject to IP protection in the United States. An extraordinary act uh, of investment and faith uh, in science. Two billion pounds in 13 years. We can now do it for $1,000 in a few hours. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day who has been in computing for the last 30 years who said he thought Moore's law was spectacular, uh, but this dwarfs it 100 times, the reduction in price and the speed with which it can be undertaken. So what has been converted from being an immensely expensive one-trick pony is now something that was actually in the reach of families uh, where they wish to have a genome sequenced. But that's pointless, and I'll explain why. What we're doing in this country, and I'm so pleased that Sally Davis is with us tonight because she has been an absolute leader in this, is leading an initiative introduced by the Prime Minister in 2012 called the 100,000 Genomes Project. 
It's been developed by a company, and Sally and I are both on the board of Genomics England. Uh, and the idea is to take sequence 100,000 genomes of NHS patients by 2017. We want to try and create an ethical, transparent program based on consent, so each of these patients will individually consent. Uh, and by the way, there is overwhelming demand uh, from patient groups, particularly in cancer and rare diseases, which are areas that we're specializing in. Uh, we want to be able to use it to um, develop uh, new, to enable new scientific discovery and medical insights and kickstart uh, the development of a UK genomics industry. Um, the realization is that um, in the UK, about 160,000 people died from cancer last year and over 330,000 new cases are reported every year. Macmillan Cancer Support uh, suggests that um, within a few years, 50% of the population will have cancer. Uh, most will live with it uh, rather than die of it, uh, at least not in the, in the immediate short term. But it's essential for a nation facing uh, that change in the incidence and the burden of disease uh, to be investing in an exercise that could transform our understanding of it. Uh, and it already does. Genomics is already guiding and informing doctors about the best treatment for individual patients, including Herceptin for HER2 positive breast cancer. But we're still only at the beginning. Many more cancer types, including those for which there is hardly any successful current treatment, such as lung cancer, could be helped if only we knew which gene changes were important and could review that across large populations. And the same is true with, with rare diseases. To make sense of it, though, the genetic information takes us nowhere. To make sense of it requires to drawing up of what we call phenotypic data, uh, which is the patient-specific data, which is allowing then the genetic data to be mapped against the patient's data, the patient's medical records, uh, and data such as previous illnesses and treatments. And then over a large population, start to use big data techniques to compare and contrast uh, the impact on individual patients. And this is where the NHS comes in. The NHS, almost uniquely in the world, is going to be able to link a whole lifetime of medical records with a person's <coughs> genome and to do it on a large scale which is completely unique. I would regard the 100,000 Genomes project as the opening of a door to something which could be far greater, which could draw upon a far greater patient cohort and allow us the, for the first time to unleash the full force of big data analytics and technology. Then let me turn to mobile health. What about the patient? Well, what about the patient indeed? Um, as uh, Monty Python would have said, the growth of mobile phone usage. Let me just touch upon this. It's, it's, I mean, mobile phones have actually been pretty disruptive, haven't they? And um, it's estimated that worldwide penetration is going to rise from about 61% last year to about 70% by 2017. Smartphone usage is on the up, uprise. Uh, 2G and 3G networks now cover about 50% of the world population. And similarly, the phone itself is a powerful tool. I mean, we introduced last year NHS 111 uh, to less than flattering accolades uh, at the outset. Uh, but in my world, when the noise dies down, you know that something's performing well. Uh, so I take perhaps false confidence in the fact that uh, 111 is now providing a service. Frankly, um, 900,000 calls a month are now going to, to 111. But even the simplest of applications, SMS texting. Do you know, I didn't know this. 97% of people read their text messages. I don't read their emails, but 97% of people who get a text message uh, read them. And um, it's having extraordinary effect. Let me just explain. The Minister of Health in India now uses SMS to prompt mothers to bring their children in for immunization. There are 26 million births a year in India. But the mother gets a prompt every two weeks, and if the child isn't brought in, she gets another one, and it isn't switched off until the child is brought in for immunization. An extraordinary use of a simple technology to achieve a breakthrough, an absolute breakthrough in the health of the population. And um, many other examples are, are, are in operation 
And these simple applications are simply the tip of an iceberg. Um, I'm going to not get, take you through some of the more, uh, the more common applications that are now being developed um, around healthcare, uh, but to say that um, the market is growing rapidly. We think there are now 100,000 apps related to healthcare available on Android and, and, and iPhone platforms. Let me then turn to nanotechnology. Um, it's another hugely disruptive technology. And again, much leadership is occurring in, in this country in, in nanotechnology. Um, we know about how it can be used within the human body. We have seen uh, the production at UCL using scientists at UCL as part of a global team and fashioning a trachea uh, using nanoparticles and stem cells from the child uh, and, and having that trachea implanted in a child who was born uh, with a narrowed um, air pipe uh, at Great Ormond Street Hospital and uh, an extraordinary organ that will grow uh, with the child using stem cells. We know about that. Uh, we also know that it cost over a million pounds to do that uh, one breakthrough and that one operation. So our classic problem, again, is to take the technology, give proof of concept, and scale it up on an affordable basis uh, for wider uh, operations. We know that we can use nanoparticles to facilitate organ repair. Uh, we can deliver cancer drugs uh, through nanoparticles specifically targeted at the tumour. And um, the supermaterial of graphene uh, developed uh, by two Russian scientists working at Manchester University offers an extraordinary uh, set of opportunities in healthcare uh, and ultra-rapid filtration and um, a new membrane uh, which has been produced at Zurich which is as thin as is technically possible. So how it all ties together comes back to that word data. Data underpins everything in that vision of a modern healthcare system. We collect data relating to individual patients and their pathway through healthcare. We do it for a group of patients suffering from rare diseases or from cancer. The value multiplies. Even more so when we do it for the whole population. We start to find correlations possibly completely unperceived correlations of conditions between patients with similar and even different conditions. We find out what care has worked and what hasn't and what else they may have in common that we hadn't thought of. And then we add the other data, the genome, uh, the, the phenotypic data. And we have an extraordinary ability to create more knowledge and feed it into what is now being known as the big data lake, uh, which iteratively improves the knowledge base. And at the heart of it is the starting point, interoperability. We have to have all of these systems cross-reading and interoperable. So I've been overly optimistic because I do believe this is transformative and I've given you the pessimistic start as a prelude to that. But let me just sum up. I think there's every prospect, every likelihood of a technological revolution in healthcare globally. Secondly, I believe that the NHS in England has the potential to be a leading global player in its advance alongside those other partners that I mentioned earlier. Benefits for patients with better targeted healthcare, but actually equally importantly, for the wider economy, through the creation of jobs. And employment itself is a major contributor to good health. I mean, the NHS should be creating jobs, not just in the NHS, but the NHS creating jobs in a wider economy, uh, promoting employment, and also benefiting financially in a way which can be reinvested uh, in the NHS through the enhancement of national uh, GDP. It's not a vision of Pollyannaish ill-informed technology optimism, but a sober realization of what's going to be needed if the Google forecast of NHS demise is not to become a reality. And my vision is for an outward-looking NHS engaged with a unique research and development base locally, nationally and globally, and engaged economically in advancing innovation. None of it's straightforward. The deployment of big data in these and any other ways looks likely to become, to become increasingly disruptive to existing understanding, cultures, 
and models of care. Far more, actually, than Derek Wanders could have anticipated in 2002, though even he then was alive to the potential power of genomics and proteomics. But it's going to be much more disruptive for the NHS if we miss the boat than if we steer it. Clinicians won't be supplanted by these technologies, but we must expect their role to be substantially changed, ensuring always the translation of benefit to patient and the promotion of well-being and the prevention of ill health. There's so much more that I could have added tonight to this snapshot of a hugely complex system. And there's innovation galore, by the way, across the NHS. But perhaps as a lawyer, I should conclude by drawing your attention to the Longitude Act of 1714, which offered a prize of £20,000 to anyone who could devise a method to accurately determine a ship's position at sea. It was outstandingly successful, not necessarily on that, but in provoking an immense range of innovation and technological evolution. So the prize has recently been revived. Uh, Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal, is leading the revival with Nestor on its 300th anniversary and included amongst the six candidate areas for a £10 million award are three that are directly health-related. Antibiotics, Dame Sally, dementia, and paralysis, or I would actually say there are five out of the six if you also include food and water, which are practically pretty health-related, I would suggest. I'd add a seventh, especially for clinicians, for the individual or team who can solve the even more complex question of how to ensure that the best technology in the world is developed and applied to sustaining and invigorating the best healthcare system in the world and to improving the health and well-being of the population of England. Thank you.